Welcome to the Business of Psychology podcast, the show that helps you to reach more people, help more people, and build the life you want to live by doing more than therapy. Hello, lovely listeners of the Business of Psychology podcast. So before we get started on today's episode, I wanted to jump in and just let you know that I anticipate that this episode could raise a little bit of anxiety. And I say that because when I conducted the interview with Eric from Marsh, uh, which is um, the kind of parent company of Oxygen, who many of us have our insurance through, Well, when I interviewed Eric, I got a little bit anxious because we're talking about cybersecurity and what could go wrong if we don't have good cybersecurity practices protecting the data that we look after in our practices. And Eric is a very knowledgeable person who has been around the corporate world of big business for a long time and he's seen a lot of scary things. Um, And some of that kind of comes over, I think, in, in the interview and left me feeling a little bit anxious. So before you dive in, I think it's a really, really useful episode. I think this is something we need to understand. I think we need to move through that anxiety and allow ourselves to become more knowledgeable about cyber and the threats that are out there. So persevere with it, people, please. Um, But just to let you know, at the end, I will be hopping on, much like this, to give you a little note about what I actually did following this episode, the practical steps that as a micro business I took to protect the um, the data of the people that I work with. Um, and as part of that, I have got a, a free downloadable uh, courtesy of Oxygen Insurers that you can download to make sure that you know exactly what to do if anything bad does happen in your practice. Um, so please don't let the anxiety run away with you. I'll be back at the end to give you some practical steps to take. Hello and welcome to the Business of Psychology podcast. I'm joined today by Eric Alter. He's Senior Vice President of Risk and Cyber Engagement Leader for Marsh. And for anyone who doesn't know, Oxygen, where many of us get our insurance, is a part of Marsh. We're here today talking about cyber insurance and why we might want to consider getting some protection from the threat that we face as practitioners working in an increasingly cyber heavy environment. So welcome to the podcast, Eric. It's lovely to have you here. Thank you, Rosanna. Good to be here. Can you tell us a little bit more about your role and what you do? Because this world of insurance is not something that many of us know a lot about. Not true. So I've been with Marsh for 16 years now. I work in the corporate practice together with the commercial practice. My role is to lead risk engagement and cyber engagement. So I work very closely with our placement team and our risk management team to set the strategy for cyber, which is not the most well understood area of risk and insurance. It's an area that people read a lot about, hear a lot about, but don't know a lot about. Agreed. And we're going to try and get that right for mental health professionals in private practice today, because it came onto my radar about a year ago now when I interviewed Catherine France on this podcast, who's an insurance expert, and she was very much of the opinion that we need this. But I think a lot of people I talk to, myself included, are not quite sure what the threats are that we're likely to face in private practice. So could you talk me through the main side? <clears throat> threats that psychologists and therapists are likely to face in our independent practices? 
Okay, there are multiple threats. There's the external threat, there's the internal threat. The internal threat is a member of staff who does something they shouldn't do, either accidentally or they may have nefarious ideas behind what they're doing. So they may be looking to, to steal data, to cause confusion, to do something to, to that, that could bring the into disrepute. The external threats are either targeted or you could use the term incidental. So criminal entities will basically run scouts across network to identify vulnerabilities and then come into the network and exploit any weaknesses and start stealing data. There's also the more targeted attacks where a target is identified and the criminal entity will then attack that target. Now, we're all aware of ransomware. Ransomware is where an organization will effectively encrypt all the data within an entity and it's not just a case of, hello, here we are, we've encrypted you. It's a longer term process, but the reality is it's incredibly dangerous. It's incredibly inconvenient. And specifically when dealing with psychologists, psychiatrists, people, when you're dealing with people who have mental health issues and where those issues may be rather kept confidential for that information to leak out can be incredibly damaging. Absolutely. So it sounds like there's the threat of potential kind of deliberate malicious attack either from within or from external actors who might have their own motivation for wanting to you know get that data I mean can you say a bit more about that actually what is the normal motivation is it that they're normally just trying to get money out of you money it's 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 effectively money and what makes it even worse is that it's not as simple as a ransomware attack which comes from a particular threat actor. You can now buy ransomware as a service on the dark web. So you can actually go onto the dark web, which I don't recommend you go to for a quick <laughs> yeah. You can't anyway, but it's not, the, it's, it's not the most pleasant area of the internet. You not need to go through a specific browser, but you can actually either ask the criminal entity to attack a target or in certain circumstances, more in the commercial world, the attackers have already hacked the entity and are now selling the hack. So, wow. oh yeah, I mean, look, you're, you're dealing with organizations that effectively have a CEO, a chief financial officer, a chief technical officer, a, risk, a research and development department, and a help desk. So this is going to get bigger, isn't it? Because it's, it's pretty big already. Because they no longer have to be smart enough to do this themselves. They can just hire a company who's already got yeah. the, wow. Got yeah, you've got well-known companies like Conti, Avedon, Reval, and Reval are defunct now, but who have effectively attacked both state entities, utilities, hospitals, businesses, insurance companies, professional services firms, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, it, you know, the disruption that these incidents cause are very, very significant. We, we, we calculate, we estimate that the average downtime post a ransomware attack for a, for a corporate is 19 days. Now, if you try to calculate the cost of 19 days of not trading, and then the reputational damage that comes along with it and the physical damage it may do to the estate, because some of these attacks can actually cause physical damage to servers, you know, they can they can completely muck up software. It, it, it's a very serious incident, and it's an incident that all businesses, you know, of any type need to take seriously. Wow, and I'm guessing that the big corporates that this has happened to, they had plans in place for dealing with this swiftly. So 19 uh -huh. days for them, it might be a lot longer than that if you're a small business that hasn't necessarily got a plan. You'd like to think so, wouldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> False assumption. 
yeah. there are still a significant number of organizations who do not have sufficiently robust cybersecurity postures in place. Who, uh, I had one particular company who turned over some in the region of 450 million pounds, 24 seven business, three, six, five days a year, relatively flat revenue streams. And they said they couldn't afford to spend the money to improve their posture. When I pointed out that their potential exposure could be as high as 30 million, all of a sudden the amount they had to spend seemed to become slightly irrelevant. But it's really how do you contextualize? And the other thing you've got to bear in mind, it's not just about the financial loss. <clears throat> You're also now getting into reputational damage. You're getting into stakeholders, shareholders, investors, patients being impacted by the hack and then looking to recover any potential losses from the entity that's been attacked, especially if they haven't got robust cybersecurity policies in place. Look, we're in an arms race. The reality is that when organizations such as FireEye, which is a cybersecurity firm, can get hacked and governments get hacked, the, the argument of saying we will never get hacked is, is clearly nonsensical. And there are lots of organizations that have no security in place at all and have just got away with it. And there are lots of organizations that do have security in place and do get attacked. So it's it's not as cut and dried as people think it is. Yes, and I suppose something which was probably giving me a false sense of security in previous years was I kind of thought, well, I've only got quite a small business. Why would somebody bother to attack me when they could be attacking one of those corporates with the you know turnover of millions? So I suppose, are we seeing that? Yes. Is this trickling down to smaller businesses or yeah. is that just where you perceive it will go? It's, it, I mean, in reality, it's got, to, it's got to trickle down to smaller businesses because they're not perceived to have the ability or the knowledge to invest in cybersecurity. Therefore, they effectively become low-hanging fruit. Now, you may not get 10 million out of them, but if you lock down a thousand small businesses and 500 of them decide to engage and agree to pay you 10,000 pounds each, you're still making money. You know, the, the, the larger attacks are, attacks are far more sophisticated. You know, there are a number of stages associated with that, such as surveillance, uh, trying to identify vulnerabilities, getting in, looking around the systems, trying to find backdoors, creating backdoors, trying to find vulnerabilities, trying to encrypt data before they then launch and exfiltrate the data. And look, a really simple thing that any entity can do is monitor outbound traffic patterns. So if your outbound traffic patterns are generally quite smooth and all of a sudden outbound traffic starts to spike, that would suggest that there is a possibility that a third party is exfiltrating data from your network to use against you. Wow, so many words, <laughs> <laughs> so many scary words. So outbound traffic? Outbound. So you, when, when, you, when you work on a computer, there are times when you download things and there are things, times when you upload things. So for instance, your backups, if they're off-premises, will be uploaded into a, a backup facility. So inbound traffic is when you're browsing the internet, when you're downloading files, things like that. And the thing you've got to bear in mind with this, and I often say this, this is as close as you're going to get to James Bond when you work in computers. <laughs> it really is. Because with conventional crimes, you have an idea where the individual is. You know, if you look at the Madoff situation, people knew who Bernie Madoff was. They knew where he was, and eventually he gave himself up because he had nowhere to go. But these hackers can be sitting in a room next door they can be in America, they can be in China, they can be in Russia, they can be in Korea, they can be in Iran, or they can be, all of them can be there at the same time whilst they're working together. Hence, you've got the uh, hacking collective called Anonymous, who declared, well, effectively attacked Russia and opposed the, inv the invasion of Ukraine. Now, Anonymous are a hacking collective who are situated all around the world. 
Wow. I mean, it's quite scary. So let's bring this back to to what this is likely to look like in a, a kind of small private practice context. So can you kind of illustrate with any examples of attacks that have happened to you know businesses like ours? So if you look at the Vastano attack where hackers stole patient data and then effectively blackmailed them, you know, that is an example of what can happen. It doesn't have to be a big business. You know, you can be a relatively small practice with some very well-known names and those names do not want their data to become known to the general public or if it's business to their competitors or to their, if they're going through marital difficulties, their spouses, whatever. So it is really, really important that, you know, that data is protected because if it does leak out, the damage it can do, A, to the individual who may already be suffering from, let's say, if you've got an individual who's suffering from paranoid delusions or something of that ilk, their data is stolen and then they are blackmailed. It is going to fundamentally fuel a paranoia. So yeah, it's literally to... every therapist's nightmare because it's really clear to see how this would have mental health implications for mm. anybody involved. You know, people that work at the practice, but obviously that any patient data that's leaked is going to have a huge impact on that patient. So yeah, that that is really, really frightening. I mean, we've talked a bit about reputational damage. I think it's clear to see what would happen reputationally if you had a cyber attack on your practice. Are there any other kind of consequences of a cyber attack that I might not necessarily have thought of? Inability to make use of your systems, permanent loss of data, damage to data. Once stuff's on the web, it's on the web for life, so it doesn't just disappear. Inability to trade, inability to attract new clients. And, you know, whilst I'm sure the, the world of psychology is a very nice world, but, you know, competitors are not too shy about exploiting vulnerabilities in some of their other, you know, in some of their competitors. If they, you know, it's all about business and reality. I mean, you can pick up a number of clients because another practice is having problems. You know, this is the real world. We like to think, oh, well, we're all friends together, but this is the real world and that may well lead to exploitation. Mm, yeah, so it could have a, a really paralyzing impact on your business. Mm. And it could be very difficult to recover from. Well, if you think about it, it, you know, how do you recover from the reputational damage that it causes? You know, this is not like, I don't know, a bank has lost some people's data and, you know, it's, only, it's a limited number. This is people's mental health. This is confidence. This is data that is considered to be highly, highly confidential. And the abuse of that data, the loss of that data, the mismanagement of that data can do real world damage. And I think as a therapist, it would be very difficult to recover your confidence in yourself as well and your confidence in your practice and your ability to keep patient data safe. I think I don't I mean, to be honest with you, forgive me for disagreeing with you there. I don't think the therapist will necessarily lose confidence in themselves. They may, may lose confidence in their practice, in the way their data is being managed, but what they are going to really struggle to, to, to retain or to regain is confidence of the patient. Mm, absolutely. That's the key thing. And of course, patients will talk to each other. So somebody who has a low level issue that needs therapy, who's approached by somebody else who recognizes, oh, which therapist do you think I should be talking to? That person may well say, well, I was dealing with this one, but I wouldn't go anywhere near them because my data was stolen, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, no, it makes absolute sense. <clears throat> so how would you find out about it typically if you've been the victim of an attack like this? Is it when that email comes in saying, you know, we've you know, locked down all your data or are there signs that you could notice before that? 
in reality, it, it tends to be after the event. And it's not just about being locked down. What also happens is that you get hackers impersonating individuals within an organization. So it is possible for a hacker to impersonate the entity's you know, financial team and to effectively then ask them to make payment into a different bank account. Oh, gosh, That's so they possible. could actually get money off yeah. your clients. Yeah, so they could potentially send a blanket email to clients saying, we've changed our bank account details. Can you please pay your money into this account moving forward? You know, it is possible for the, for the, the patient in all good faith to make that payment to a fraudulent bank account. And by the time it's discovered, by the time the finance team starts chasing people for non-payment, it's too late. Gosh, that's really frightening. That's, or, yeah. Or they could ask them by email to share personal data, to share confidential data, to say, you know, we're having some problems and we've had a flood in the in the practice and we're going to do this online or something like that. You know, there's the risk is very, very broad. Absolutely. It's really frightening to think of all the different ways that they could use that data. And just just one thing I will say to you, there needs to be a degree of proportionality here. You know, all of us running around with ever decreasing circles like the Uslan bird until we disappear up our own backsides is really not the solution. You need to be proportional, but you need to take basic steps to ensure that the likelihood of it happening, you know, is is certainly reduced. Well, that was going to be my next question, actually. So what what are the main things we need to make sure that we're doing? to prevent a cyber attack, reduce the likelihood? Okay, reduce it. You need to actually start with understanding the value of your data. So what are you protecting? Now, one of the simplest things you can potentially protect yourself is by encrypting all of your data. So all your patient data, all confidential data is thoroughly encrypted. And then when you back up the data, it is backed up to an immutable backup. When I say immutable, it cannot be changed. So if the data is fully encrypted, its value to the attacker is very limited. It may be the case of, unless you give us money, we won't give you your data back. But it isn't the case that, and we'll dump your patient data on the dark web, and we'll start pursuing the patients and blackmailing them. So there are some, you know, some initial steps you can take. Clearly, firewalls are very important. And any remote access to, to the service should be through multi-factor authentication. There should be very, very strong limits to the number of people who can access the admin systems. Everything should be password protected. No, a key thing is no personally identifiable data or personal health information that is not in the public domain should be emailed to a personal email address. So if a therapist wants to do some work at home on some patient files, Absolutely no way should that be sent to a BT internet or whatever email address, because then it's in the public domain. There are cloud-based networks that can be accessible. If somebody's you know, email address and password has been compromised on their personal email address, that data could then fall into the wrong hands. So they're, the, they're, the, you know, they're things that organizations need to do. We would recommend that if possible and where it's available, having cybersecurity in place is a good thing to do, because it's not just about providing you with money to recover it also provides you with certain professional services such as forensics data management potentially providing credit checking facilities for the impacted individuals so it provides you with you know a significant raft of services but where cyber insurance isn't available isn't affordable then you really need to look at it and think okay how do i manage this and the way i look at it is 
You know, would you leave your front door open when you go out shopping? Would you leave your keys in the front door? You know, if, if you had a, a nice convertible car and you decided that you were going to your local McDonald's or whatever, and you sort of went into the McDonald's gate of the coffee, leaving your keys in the ignition of the car, how surprised would you be if the car wasn't there when you returned? And how do you think the insurance company might react? And you said, well, I left my keys in the car engine running while I got myself a coffee. When I came back, the car wasn't there. So common sense absolutely has to be applied in this space. So there are a couple of things I wanted to pick up on. It sounds like most of what we need to do is is required anyway for us to be compliant with the GDPR and the ICO requirements. Is there anything that you've mentioned there that wouldn't come under that, which is additional to? I didn't, I mean, this might be a daft question, but I, I don't necessarily know what firewalls are. Is that like Norton security, that kind of thing? Yes, it's a firewall <laughs> is basically, that is, it's, it's effectively exactly what it says. It stops things coming into your network that shouldn't come into your network. Now, they have a certain benefit, but at a certain stage, they can be breached. You've got to have a proportionate view of this. You're not, it's not going to happen to everyone, but the likelihood of it happening is there. And when it does happen, it's, it's a bit like driving a car. Most of the time, you drive your car perfectly safely. But when you have an accident and somebody, your car is written off and somebody's potentially injured or worse, boy, oh boy, are you glad you've got insurance? Yeah, so I, I guess <clears throat> it's thinking about, you know, preventing what we can, but recognising that there are, you know, people who have minds that are really talented at figuring these things out and thinking outside of the box and creating new ways to infiltrate the systems that, you know, couldn't be predicted or be very difficult to predict. And so having that awareness that even if you have really good cybersecurity measures in place, there is still a chance that that will be breached because these people are super gifted at what they do. The thing to bear in mind, it's what they're after <clears throat> is data. And the reason they want that data is then use that against you and to generate revenue or to sell it on the dark web. Now, if the value of your data is in the records that you hold on patients and financial, personal, as well as therapy records in your patients, the easiest way to protect yourself is where possible and where practical to encrypt that data mm. and to use, you know, one to eight or two, five, six K bit encryption so that if the data is compromised, it may be very inconvenient. You may not be able to access the records that the patient is safe. Their data isn't going to be leaked and isn't going to be used against them. So you might have to say to your patient, I'm really sorry, your records have been destroyed because of. And this is no different. If you if you look at the world pre-cyber pre and pre-internet and pre-data, it's, it's possible that an organization was attacked. And basically that it was all paper. There was a fire in a place and it was all paper files. And the fire burnt everything down. You know, so it's it's no different from that. It's just it's moved on more quickly. I think the other thing is that people have a greater need for access. They want to access mm. things quickly and immediately. But the worst thing that could potentially happen is that someone's personal data is stolen and it then appears on social media. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, thinking about my practice and probably, you know, be relevant for a lot of the listeners, I use management software, which... I don't hold any patient data on, on a machine or on a memory stick or anything. It, it only lives inside the practice management software 
And when that's closed, I believe it is encrypted. Other common strategies I know people use in their practices are things like Google Drive, not the one that downloads onto your desktop, but the one that only lives in the cloud. Is that encrypted? I don't know whether that's encrypted, but again, you've got to be careful. So if you're using industry-specific software that is designed in such a way that it deals with that data in, in, in the appropriate manner. And if that's a cloud service, so software as a service uh, provider, then it is important that you check into the credentials, that you make sure they are ISO 27001, NIST accredited, that they have Cyber Essentials Plus, that they encrypt, et cetera, et cetera. So don't assume they do it. I don't know enough about Google Drive. We don't use Google Drive. Okay, so we don't we don't use Dropbox, we don't use any external storage because it's considered to be too risky. If it's in the open cloud, it's more likely to be at risk than if it's in a specific vendor who specializes in the area that you work. Mm. So I think that's something for us to think about. I mean, the way that I run my practice, if anybody listening is interested, is everything sensitive lives inside write up, which I know I have looked into and does have the required protections. Anything that's in Google Drive is either anonymized or it's it's not patient related. So I do think that it's worth applying that extra high level. Yeah. You mentioned something else which I wanted to draw out that I think people will be able to take away from this and, and action straight away. And that's two-factor authentication or multi-factor authentication. Can you say a bit more about what that is and, and how that protects it's a multi-factor authentication, so you actually have to go through a degree of authentication before you can access the network. So we utilize something called Zscaler, we utilize VPN, we utilize remote desktop. So effectively, if I if I log on to the system or if I log on to, to sensitive systems within our infrastructure, I'm asked to re-authenticate. So for instance, if I look, we utilize Workday, so if I want to look at my personal tax records or pay slips or p60 i can't just go onto that i go onto it it asks me to authenticate it will automatically send a message to my mobile i will then validate that it's me and enter a code that it gives me on the system that that that's sort of does the whole thing so, so you'll be used to dealing with that if you deal with hmrc they do that yeah. if you use stripe or i think paypal's doing it now online um, banking Online banking, yeah. So for yeah. all of those, I think they do it as standard. But I'm aware that there are some where you need to switch it on. And yeah. Google Drive is certainly like that. You have to switch yeah. it on and you have to switch it on for all users. So if you have a VA or someone else in your team who is also accessing your admin data, then you need to make sure that you've got it switched on for them because they may not switch it on because it's inconvenient. So as the kind of leader... I've switched it on for everyone who works with me. They don't have a choice. They have to use it. But you might need to do that assertively, I think. I mean, the reality is if you don't switch it on, but take a step back. If you approach an insurer and you don't have multi-factor authentication in places at their minimum, the likelihood of them responding to your request for cover is very, very slim. It is, you know, there are, it is a, a minimum required requirement that insurers are looking for because they just, you know, they just want to make sure that the risk that they are protecting is well protected. Mm. That makes so, sense. You know, I mean, there are 12 key controls within the corporate environment that insurers look for. So you've got multi-factor authentication, but email filtering and web security. So email filtering is that stuff like Mimecast, Barracuda, 365 have a version, secured, encrypted, and tested, and immutable backups. 
privileged access managers are controlling who can access your privileged systems. Endpoint detection and response. Every device that is connected is an endpoint. Mobile phone, laptop, et cetera, et cetera. They need to be protected. Now, patching and vulnerability management is critical. So understanding your vulnerabilities and if someone like a Microsoft issues a business critical patch, install it as quickly as you possibly can because once that gets into the public domain, it's exploitable. So when the when the Microsoft Exchange patch was issued, there were huge number of attacks on Exchange before it came to be. And I have got clients who were attacked. Incident response plans. Now, obviously, for a small practice, you don't need a you know a big scribe. You just need a basic plan that says this is what we will do if such and such happens. So it's not a case of running around in panic. We've got something to refer to. A cybersecurity awareness training, making people aware of what their responsibilities are. With health and safety, you say to someone who's responsible for health and safety, everyone is. With cybersecurity, it's exactly the same. Who's responsible for cybersecurity? Everyone who has access to email, everyone who has access to systems is effectively responsible. And you can test it. You can send out phishing emails. You can send out fake emails and see whether people click on them. Um, you need to make sure that your remote desktop is protected. So when you're coming into the network, you need to have logging and monitoring of network activity. Very often, if you outsource your data, that sits at the end there. Replacing the protection of end-of-life systems. Anything that is no longer protected or under, under maintenance should be replaced or should be segmented. And managing your digital supply chain. So managing that digital supply chain is that reliance on third-party service provision, which could create a vulnerability for you. So make sure that they have cybersecurity in place. Make sure that they have incident response plans in place. Make sure that if their data effectively is compromised, which impacts on your business, they've got a recovery plan for it. So one thing I just wanted to pull out of that list is the updates thing. Because I think it's really easy, isn't it, to let those updates stack up yeah. on your devices. And actually, what I'm hearing is that doing that creates a vulnerability. And we need to be keeping as up to date as possible. Is that yeah. right? Yeah, absolutely. So if so, there was there was a, a, a renowned hack two years ago now. It was either last year or the year before. I think it was last year, actually. Log4j or Log4Shell. It's a piece of open source software that is it's, it's fairly ubiquitous within a number of systems. And the vulnerability was identified and exploited. <clears throat> and an organization used a patch. And the initial patch actually made it worse. <sighs> it's the second patch which resolved the issue. And it was widely, widely deployed. And the, 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 finance, the, the, the press statements of this is the end of the internet as we know it were surprising for the press, somewhat exaggerated. The internet, as you know, we're using at the moment is still very much alive and kicking. But, you know, the, the vendors will make you aware, will write to you and say, you are a Microsoft Exchange client. We have issued an update that needs to be installed rapidly. You know, it's like if you look at your iPhone, an iPhone, if there's an update to be installed, it's there. If there's an, if there's an Android update to be installed, it's there. So the vendors have a responsibility of keeping you informed as to what needs to be done. Vulnerability scanning is much more about scanning the vulnerability within your estate, within your network, whether there are any software issues. And what you can actually do, you can now almost acquire online patching technology. So the patching is done for you. But within, within, within it's always the case with insurance, it has to be reasonable and practicable. So yes, the target date for putting critical patches in place may be 72 hours. But if you've got a large estate and it's going to take you twice that time frame to do it, as long as you can demonstrate you're doing it, then 
you know, you are in a better place than you would be if you just ignore it. I mean, thankfully, most of us have very limited infrastructure. So we might have, you know, a, cu a couple of laptops, a big kind of desktop computer and a few kind of mobile devices in the practice in total. So it's kind of easier to keep a track of than it would be in a big organisation. Exactly. But are those laptops encrypted? Probably not. Although, actually, I don't know. If they're password protected... No, that doesn't mean they're encrypted. So is that a box you've got to tick? To make I would strongly... Well, I, I touched on encryption before. So we operate a system where we have pre-security. So if I log on to... If I switch on my laptop, I've got to go through safe boot which then activates the bios it actually activates the operating system can't do anything without that and then we go through the further logon and multi-factor authentication but in addition to that my laptop is encrypted so if i put a memory stick inside of my laptop to try and download files onto the memory stick it will work but i won't be able to look at the data because the entire memory stick is automatically encrypted okay so if i then plug my memory stick into the target device, all our guns probably did. But encryption, encryption, encryption of desktops, of laptops, of servers is one of the areas that I, as, as an individual, rather than purely as a Martian, I think is an essential thing to do. Okay, that's really helpful. And I think, I remember when I was setting up my laptop that there was a service for that, that I could make it encrypted does it have to be special equipment to encrypt it or can if, normal computers do this if normal computers come with it depends on the on, on the you know on the integrity of the encryption some computers look an iphone is automatically encrypted right iphones are encrypted which is why it's so difficult to get data off them and which is why there have been a number of arguments between bereaved families and apple to you know we want to get our child our parents whatever data back and well it's encrypted and we won't release it actually the Israelis who managed to hack it eventually. But it's, it, you know, you, you can buy specific encryption software. If the system comes with, with, with encryption capabilities, make sure that it's good enough. Because if it's easy to crack, then it's of no use. If it's very generic and it's understood by the attacker, then they could just un potentially, potentially they could just unencrypt it. But having proper encryption software is a good thing to do. Okay. And do we still need that even if we don't? download anything onto the device if there's nothing on the device that is personally identifiable if there's nothing on the device that has any value to a third party then potentially no so if it's just an operating system and there's an, and it can't allow you to log on to the app to the mm -hmm. practice app without further authentication then technically maybe not but if there's anything on there that can be used against an individual or against you as a psychologist or against the practice, then encrypt it. And in, in, in a way, it's, it's just good practice. Yeah, I was thinking that because we're all tired. It would be easy to leave something on the desktop, even if your normal practice is to make sure that there's nothing on there at the yeah. end of the day. And certainly if you are you know, employing people I would think that I wouldn't want to trust that that policy was always followed just because people are tired and we make mistakes. So having that extra layer sounds like a very sensible thing to do. And I'll definitely be looking into it. Precisely. It goes back to a rather unfortunate quote from, from quite a few years ago after the Brighton bomb attack, where the IRA said, you need to be lucky every day. We need to be lucky once. Mm, that's sinister. Yep. It is very <laughs> sinister, but the reality is, you know, 
look, you could, you know, it, 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 it's, it's, you know, I don't know what they call it, SOTS law. You know, you, you've been working with a patient, you've taken down a significant number of notes on your laptop, you have not been able to upload them to your application provider because there wasn't a network connection. And that very day, somebody snatches your bag with your laptop in it. Any other day, it wouldn't have mattered. It would have been, last. I need to get myself a new laptop. But that particular day, and you now have an obligation to inform the patient or patients that their data has been compromised. You have to inform the ICO. You've got the GDPR issues. You've got the risk of a fine by the ICO. You've got a risk of being sued by the individual, et cetera, et cetera. It just isn't worth it. It's just easier you know, to, have, to have data encrypted because if you do lose your laptop, yes, it's inconvenient, but the data can't be accessed. Yeah, no, I think that makes a lot of sense. Okay, so something I wanted to ask really is, you know, what would be your action plan if you know I discovered tomorrow that my practice has had a cyber attack against it? Where should I go first for help? Oh, it's a very good question. It's always if you have cyber insurance, phone your insurers. Okay, and great. I do. Then, Excellent. Yeah, let them then take over. They will provide you with a lot of what you need. Phone your broker because they will also provide you with support around dealing with the issue. Make sure you've got an incident response plans in place and make sure it's not on the system that's just been compromised. Make sure it's actually printed on a piece of paper or on a little booklet so you can access it and start going through the process. I would not uh, have thought of that. Thank you. That's actually a really good tip. Oh, we've had that before. Now, where's your business continuity plan? Is that building us on fire over there? Yeah, it's in there. No, <laughs> you know, that that needs to be carried. That needs to be either on a memory stick or it needs to be in the in the in the in the hands and in the control of an individual who works for an entity. And the reality is when you've got a phone that can quite easily take 256 gig of data to have those business continuity plans on a mobile phone that is encrypted, that is protected, is not a bad thing. So right. they they are the key things. And the other thing is don't panic. Sit down. Breathe, think about what you need to do. Think about what has happened, what the best steps are. Don't try and hide it. Don't try and fix it yourself. If something has happened, if your data has been compromised, if your systems are down, don't automatically think you've been hacked. Because the other thing is you could have a bricked computer. You could have a software failure. You could have a hardware failure. But the natural response now is well, we've clearly been hacked. Don't assume you've been hacked until you know you've been hacked. Yes, I think that's good advice. I mean, I had an email once saying I'd been hacked and I hadn't. That was a scam that was going around for a while. If you then clicked the link, you would have been hacked. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so thankfully, it's one I was aware of. The level of sophistication around social engineering is becoming more and more and more sophisticated. And bear in mind, this is an ever-changing landscape. You know, the property market is the property market. Fleet insurance is fleet insurance. You drive a car, your car can be stolen. Your car can be damaged, your car can be flooded, your car can catch fire. You know, the things that can happen to the car are relatively limited. And the things that can cause that to happen are relatively limited and understood. But because cyber is such an evolving landscape, because we're now seeing the geopolitical situation being the way it is, where there is the risk of cyber terrorism, where you can't just engage with a hacker because if they're a sanctioned entity, you would be breaching sanctions. So if you are hacked, it's almost always worthwhile calling the National Crime Agency, explaining what has happened. And if they say, yes, you can engage with a hacker, then you can. If they say, no, you can't engage with a hacker, trust me, don't. Gosh, that's scary. Because, you know, sanctions busting is 
It's frowned upon. Frowned upon, yeah. We'll try not to engage. I've got some action steps that I've been writing down while we've been talking. And I guess that this is something that we need to continuously work on because the threats change all the time, the capabilities change. And so we need to kind of keep on top of it. Is there somewhere that you'd recommend that we tune into regularly to get advice about stuff we need to know? It's always worth looking at the ICO and the National Cybercrime site. You know, they, they always have useful data on there. You can always also just Google and say, look, you know, what, what are the key cyber risks to psychologists, to medical practices? And if you do put that in, the first thing that obviously comes in is the hack in Finland. You know, that was heavily publicised. I think a lot of stuff happens behind the radar. Bear in mind that you read about the big stories. You know, you, you read about it when a big corporate being hacked rather than Joe Bloggs florist around the corner, because nobody's interested in Joe Bloggs florist around the corner. So just because you don't read about it doesn't mean it's not happening. And and activity, so criminal activity is increasing. It it effectively virtually we we anticipate we haven't got the stats yet, but it doubled from 2021 into 2022. And the big the big issue you've also got, of course, in your space is that people may be so embarrassed about it that they're tempted not to report it. Do not do that. If you are attacked, report it. You are not alone. There are people there to support you, and the damage you will do to your organization by trying to hide it is far greater than the damage that may be caused by dealing with it. Okay, I think that's some really good advice to end on there. Again, thank you so much for for coming on to the podcast. Absolute pleasure. I think this is a topic that we'll be revisiting. And if you're a member in Psychology Business School and you've got any questions about this, do come and ask me on the coaching call. I won't know the answer, but I will find out for you. So yes, thank you so much, Eric. I'll bring the episode to an end now, but I'll put some key links in the show notes for people as well so they can look up some more information about this stuff. Thank you. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. Hello again, people. You made it. Well done. So if you're anything like me, you might be feeling a little bit anxious right now. So I wanted to share with you the three practical steps that I took after I finished interviewing Eric. And I literally did these within a couple of days of the interview because I was left with a little bit of anxiety and I don't want that to be too uncomfortable for you. So I thought I'll share the practical steps that I took that I deemed were sensible given the size of my business and the resources that I have available to me. Okay, so the first thing I went away and did, and I did this within a couple of hours of finishing the interview, is I went and I switched on two-factor authentication on all of the software I use that has any data at all or has the ability to connect with any other software programs that have data attached to them. So that meant that I switched on two-factor authentication for WriteUp, for Xero, for Google, uh, for all my social profiles. Oh, and LastPass, LastPass, important one. If you use that, which I really recommend, it's like a, it's a password manager. You can store lots of things securely in there. It does not automatically turn on two-factor authentication, which is a bit crazy in my view, given what it's for. Um, so I switched it on for LastPass as well. Um, and I am looking into how I can switch it on for my website. Um, my web developer is going to do that bit for me. Uh, so those are the places that I felt it was really Really important to go and switch on two-factor authentication. For anyone who doesn't necessarily know what two-factor authentication
certification is. Uh, don't worry, it might be something that you haven't come across yet, but you will. It's going to be everywhere very soon. But this is when you have to type in a code that either gets sent to you by text message or you get from an authenticator app. Um, when you log into something. So you don't just use a username and password, you also have to authenticate using another device. So it makes it super secure because it means that somebody would have had to got your username, got your password and stolen your phone and be able to get into that um, in order to impersonate you and get into your platform. So a really, really good idea and a very quick fix. It took me less than one evening to do it. So do that. The second thing I did was I encrypted my laptop and my work desktop. This was very easy too. Uh, I work on Mac, they've got a program called Firevault that you just switch on in settings and it's done. The, the downside of encryption is that if I ever forget my password, I will not be able to recover any data that is on those machines. Um, but as I've mentioned during this episode and in previous episodes, I actually don't keep data on my machine anyway. Um, so for me, that didn't seem like a huge downside and it protects me just in case on the off chance my laptop gets nicked on the one day that I forget to clear my desktop before I shut down for the day. We've all got busy lives. It's possible, isn't it? It could happen. So I thought it was a step worth taking. And it wasn't difficult. And I'm sure that there's an equivalent for um, for modern, up-to-date Microsoft programs too. Uh, the third thing that I did was I wrote out a really basic incident response plan, um, which basically says, I will investigate, I won't reply to anybody, and I'll call my insurer. Um, so those are the, the step, basic steps that I would go through if something did go wrong and I became aware that there had been a cybersecurity incident. Um, but don't worry, you don't, you don't even have to do that bit. You don't have to write out your own incident response plan because Oxygen have very kindly given us one, um, which I can give away to you for free. Um, so head to the show notes of this episode and you can download a free incident response plan courtesy of Oxygen, which takes all the anxiety out of it. You can just save it. If you ever need it, should you ever need it, you've got a copy of it. Or as Eric would say, print it <laughs> and put it somewhere um, where you don't have to rely on your IT to access it. Very sensible. Um, so I hope that's taken some of the anxiety out of it for you. And I hope that you feel a little bit more knowledgeable and a bit more empowered to take control of your cybersecurity. The one thing I'd really recommend you do is get cyber insurance. Uh, I've got cyber insurance. I realized that it was important as soon as I started collecting data on my website. And really, I think for all of us these days, it's an important insurance to have. Like I said, I have mine through Oxygen. Um, I don't know what other providers are out there. I found it quite difficult to find somebody willing to insure me and Oxygen made it really easy. Um, so it's worth having a look at them if you're looking for insurance. I'm not an affiliate. I don't get any money <laughs> from Oxygen for any of this. It's just genuinely that that's who I found to be most helpful. So do go and take a look at that if you don't already have cyber insurance. Um, but otherwise, I hope that you feel a bit less anxious and a bit more empowered about this particular area of our practice. If you've got any questions about it at all, you can come and find me on Instagram. I'm at Rosie Gilderthorpe. Send me a DM and I'd be really happy to look into it for you. Thank you so much for listening to the Business of Psychology podcast. 
I'd really appreciate it if you could take the time to subscribe, rate and review the show. It helps more mental health professionals just like you to find us and it also means a lot to me personally when I read the reviews. Thank you in advance and we'll see you next week for another episode of Practical Strategy and Inspiration to move your independent practice forwards.